Welcome to episode 39 of season 2 of the Search with Candor podcast. I am your host, Jack Chambers-Ward, and this week I am joined by a very special guest, the one and only Alex Hickson. Alex Hickson is, you may already know, the brand new head of PR at Trunk BBI. You may also know Alex from his fantastic work in digital PR across many other agencies throughout his career hosting the Where's the Bride podcast, all from being one of the founders of Flaming Crap, the pop culture-inspired and politically charged candle company. Alex and I are going to be talking about the topic of breaking out of your brand bubble when it comes to digital PR. Basically, I'm thinking this episode is kind of a follow-up to some of the things Jenny Abuabaya and I were talking about a few weeks ago, where we're talking about the importance of digital PR and how key it can be to your SEO success. And Alex and I are going to dive into a little aspect of that and thinking about how you, your website and your clients can think about digital PR in new ways and hopefully get your clients to understand how they don't have to stick with the same thing every single time and you can actually break out of your brand bubble and take opportunities that might not be so obvious to you. So as a digital PR specialist and Alex will go into a lot of detail, and me, not as a digital PR person, I am full of questions. So that will be coming up in a few minutes. But before we get to that stuff, of course, Search for Candor is supported by Systrix, the SEO's toolbox. You can go to systrix.com slash SWC if you want to check out some of their fantastic free tools, such as their SERP snippet generator, href lang validator, checking out your site's visibility index, and the Google update tracker. And I actually just want to kind of highlight something I talked about with Luce Rawlings, one of the data journalists over at Systrix. I had Luce on the show. Really interesting episode if you haven't already checked it. That was a very recent episode a couple of weeks ago. And we dived into the visibility leaders, huge piece of data that they have dived through. And the data journalist team, as well as some of the team in-house at Systrix, have run through a lot of really interesting data about content hubs and essentially what this boils down to is the Systrix team and the data journalism team deciding the four winners of the visibility leader awards and they are literal actual awards you can uh, go and watch the videos Steve literally gives people awards for their fantastic work in SEO and the essentially the power of their not only the domains but specific directories and content hubs that they've been building And if you'd like to know more, if you'd like to get some examples of some really fantastic content hubs, I highly recommend you go and check that out. Links, of course, will be in the show notes for all this stuff. And if you want to hear it in more detail, I recommend you go back and listen to my episode with Loose Rawlings from a couple of weeks ago. Before we get to my interview with Alex, I know I'm talking a lot in the intro. Well, we'll get there in a second, I promise. You may hear it in my voice. I've just got back from Brighton SEO. That is obviously in the October 2022 version. and I'd just like to say a quick thank you, basically, to everyone who said hello, said they listened to the podcast and are enjoying what we're doing here at Canda and enjoying what Mark and I have been doing since I joined the show. And yeah, it was a really, really cool experience, essentially. Huge shout out to Kelvin and Joe and the team. Massive shout out to the Wix team, Crystal Carter, Kyle, all those guys putting on some fantastic merch some fantastic swag a fantastic dinner as well from the wix guys fantastic to meet 
so many people I'd never met before, so many SEO heroes of mine, some of whom have been on the podcast before, and uh, yeah, not only was I attending, as, you know, attending a lot of really interesting talks and things like that, and, and schmoozing and doing some networking, I also was actually running around with a essentially candor-branded bright pink microphone recording a bunch of stuff for an upcoming episode as well. So, Miriam Jessier and I are working on a Halloween special coming up, which will come out exactly on Halloween. So three weeks from when this episode comes out, this episode comes out on Monday the 10th of October, that episode will come out on Monday the 31st on Halloween itself. And I ran around essentially all across the Brighton Centre recording SEO horror stories with some of SEO's biggest and brightest voices. And it was really interesting. It was a lot of fun. An incredible selection of people. Everyone from Andy Jarvis to John Mueller to Martin Split to all kinds of different people across Brighton. It was, it was fantastic and very interesting and very, very cool. So please do stay tuned for that. Like I said, that's coming up in three weeks' time. Miriam Jessier, Stephanie Walter, and I will be hosting a Halloween special. And I will hopefully be then editing in those little clips I also recorded in Brighton. So we'll essentially have a full kind of Halloween spooktacular is essentially my plan for that episode. And speaking of Brighton SEO, one of the people I actually had the pleasure of meeting very briefly in person somebody I very, very much look up to in the industry and who I think is a beacon of knowledge and positivity and brilliance in the SEO industry, is the one and only Arij Abouali. One of my highlights, her talk about really interesting stuff, e-commerce stuff, talking about filters, which I think is going to be really useful for me personally, uh, for some of my e-commerce clients here at Canda. And essentially, I wanted to shout out Arij and the team who have organized the Women in Tech SEO Festival, which is coming back in March 2023. It's going to be a full one-day conference, so it's 10 speakers across the full day on the 3rd of March, which is a Friday. So Friday, the 3rd of March, 2023. It's a full 9 till 5.30 conference with an after party afterwards based in London. You can go to womenintechseo.com. There is information for all buying tickets and information and all that kind of stuff there. And uh, yeah, as you've probably heard from previous guests and as you will hear from future guests as well, any women I talk to in the SEO industry have nothing but incredible things to say about Women in Tech SEO and the community and the event that Arij has built over the last few years. So. If you are a woman in tech, SEO, if you're a woman in SEO in general, and you're looking for like-minded people and a safe space to enjoy all the interesting, fantastic speakers, I know there is some a really, really great lineup already. Like I said, go to womenintechseo.com to check all of that out. But I've been talking a lot. I know this is a very long intro, and I will now shut up and let you enjoy my conversation with the one and only Alex Hickson. Without any further ado, welcome to the show, Alex Hickson. How are you? I'm good, mate. Thanks. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for saying that back. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's all right. Just check it out. You are, Jack. Just check it out. You are. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a very, very interesting topic. We were just talking before we start recording. We described it as a meaty topic. Listen, it's going to be a big one and, a, and maybe some controversial stuff. We'll see. We'll see how we go. We'll 
we'll shake up some uh, digital PR and SEO discussions as we go through. But before we get into all of that, just in case the listeners don't know who you are, who are you, Alex? What are you doing? Why are you here? <laughs> uh, very good question. Um, so I'm Alex. I'm currently the head of digital PR at Trump BBI. Uh, I previously worked at John Doe, which is like a creative brand agency. And before that, um, I was at Rise at Seven for a couple of years. Um, but my main career has been digital PR, really, for the past sort of five years, six years now. Um, and before that, I used to do PR for events and festivals. But ultimately, digital PR is my bread and butter. Nice. So how was that transition from you? Because I think you've got a marketing and communications degree, right? So you went yeah. and did a master's in that, and I, I've listened to your podcast, spoiler alert. <laughs> I did my research. <laughs> and um, how was that kind of transition going to kind of like festival and event PR to then agency side digital PR where you are now? Yeah, so in my original undergraduate degree, I did politics. Oh, um, right. I thought okay. for ages that oh, I'll go into politics. I've always been really interested in it. Um, and then after I graduated, I worked in recruitment for a year, which uh, recruitment is not for me. Let's just say that <laughs> it was not my favorite job in the world. I think it's one of those jobs where you are either like built to be a recruiter or it's the worst job you've ever had in your life. Right? <laughs> yeah, literally. And it was, and it, do you know what? It taught me that I'm like money motivated to a degree, but not to that mm. degree. Um, <laughs> and so after that, I, I kind of realized that I actually enjoyed like, working with these corporations on more of like a corporate communications level. Mm. Um, so I quit my recruitment job, ended up getting a job. Um, I'm from Blackpool originally, so I sort of moved back to the File Coast, got a job um, at Lytham Festival, if anyone's ever been to Lytham Festival, and was helping them do their like corporate PR for the festival, which was really, really cool. Um, and then it was after that, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go back and do a master's and try and learn a little bit more about this. Um, did that for a year and then it was through that that I kind of opened the door to agency life really started interning and then got my first digital PR job um during my master's I actually started it before I finished wow. actually which is cool good. um yeah <laughs> and then transitioning <laughs> through going from sort of starting now becoming head of digital PR that's a very cool job title to have how are you finding that transition kind of coming through and like growing your career and ascending the ladder, as it were. Yeah, I really um, enjoy it. I think there's been a lot of uh, change in the industry. Like I started digital PR and working in digital agencies, specifically, obviously, pre-pandemic and learning the ropes and getting to grips with the industry for it all to kind of be thrown up into the air and have to adapt to it was really interesting, especially from a PR perspective. Um, I sort of like, I definitely I cut my teeth whilst I was at Rise at Seven. Like I started Rise as a senior exec and left there as a PR lead. So I had my own team, um, managed my own team, was looking after like some of our biggest clients. That's a pretty busy, like high energy job, right? From what I understand from other people I spoke to who currently work there or worked there before, it's a pretty like full on role at yeah. Rise at Seven, right? Yeah, it is. It was absolutely um, a bit of a baptism of fire in the best yeah. way. Like, <laughs> I learned really well like that. I'm very much a chuck me into it and we'll see if mm. we sink or swim kind of person. Um, but it was so beneficial because the experience and the kind of clients that I work with and the responsibility, I think, that I was given and the trust that I was given so early on in my career, I think, was 
so beneficial to kind of get to where I am now. Um, like really quickly, I sort of understood that I love the people management side of things. I absolutely love development and sort of trying to pull the best out of people and understanding the dynamics of a team and all that kind of thing. And I think now being head of PR at an agency is like really fulfilling because I still get to be creative and think about how we can get results for clients and big names and and things like that. But I also get to cultivate this amazing team of people and make sure that like they're performing to the best of their ability. They're doing things that they enjoy. Um, like I love my job. Like it's so cringe and cliche <laughs> to say, but I genuinely love what I do. And I want people that I work with to feel that as well and make sure they're getting the most out of their job. So I think just being passionate about it has helped as well. I think, yeah, I am really lucky that I do genuinely love what I do every day. <laughs> and lovely to hear you're a fellow podcaster as well which is yes. always great to hear i first was kind of introduced to you through the pr people podcast listened to that and then kind of got to know you uh through that and you now host where's the bride podcast as well you want to tell the listeners a little bit more about your podcasting exploits yes so pr people was a podcast i did with callum taylor uh who works at kaizen and that was kind of the first foray into doing it really and that was obviously very, you know, similar industry specific talking to digital PR people, PR people, people in this space. Um, but then recently, me and my fiance were getting married next year. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but we, so we're two men, and quickly as we were like wedding planning, realized, do you know what? It's actually, there's not many platforms out there that cater towards a wedding that's not a heterosexual bride and groom. And I was quite surprised at that, really, because you know, gay people have been able to get married for a decade now. And, and you, we thought there'd be a lot more out there. So I thought, actually, I feel like there's a space to kind of have a conversation around this. And that's kind of where Where's the Bride was born from. And it's been really, um, it's been really rewarding as well to do something that's like a passion project that's like slightly outside of what I do for a job as well. Like, I kind of, I can't resist like trying to PR it and all that kind of thing, just because why not? But um, it's been really nice to kind of chat to different people, chat to people in the wedding industry, explore what they think. Like, it's fun doing it with Oliver, my fiance. Um, it's, yeah, it's just very different. And it's quite nice to have something that I enjoy doing, but it's kind of slightly outside of work at mm. the same time. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting mix. I know, like, like I got married in May <laughs> earlier this year and didn't do a podcast about it because it would have been very boring. <laughs> Just just a straight up heterosexual couple here, nothing interesting <laughs> particularly. <laughs> so uh yeah, it was an it's an interesting thinking how like, you know, passions and then like big life events and like you said, you've got that little inkling of your PR brain kind of ticking away. I know I have that with my SEO brain as well. You just can't turn yourself off sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like, I just can't help myself. I want to tie it into something. <laughs> yes. Yes. Honestly, my like innate desire to build links to a website is is sad really. I was like, I mean, I mean that's, a, that's a good habit to get into, mate. That's a pretty good habit yeah. to get into. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. So we're, we're, um, we're doing a, like a website for our actual wedding, to like RSVP. I was like, oh, I wonder, all of them are feeling the same. It's like, we don't, need, we don't need that. We don't need that to rank. I don't want that to rank. I don't want loads of random people seeing it. I, was like, I oh, had the exact same, same conversation with my wife, Emma. Like, <laughs> I, I built a website for our wedding and she was like, are you going to do all that SEO crap? I'm like, no. What am I going to rank for? Jack and Emma's wedding. Like, who cares? Yeah, like, exactly. People aren't going to Google. We're not celebrities. They're not going to Google our wedding. Like, 
I mean, you've got a podcast. You might actually, might actually. I know. You know well, this is the people thing know now. you're getting married and actually care about it. So I know. I'm waiting for like to actually get like a really good like crop of listeners. Then we get married. Like, oh, like I would have done it that way. I would have done that. Like, but um, we'll see. We'll see next year. <laughs> and people also might know you from being the founder of Flaming Crap as well. Yeah. I know. I again. I also saw that. Completely separately from the PR People podcast, which was, like I said, my introduction to you, I saw that pop up on, on Twitter and I was like, Alex Hicks and I reckon I was like, oh my God, yeah, the PR People <laughs> podcast guy, yeah, oh my God. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about how you kind of founded Flaming Crap and how that started. Yeah, so that um, that was the beginning of like, I can't I always talk about like passion projects, but that was the very first one where I was like, do you know what, I'm going to see if I can create something just based on what I do day to day and it was basically during it was like the first lockdown in 2020 um obviously very little to do just me and my (laughs) boyfriend in the house um and he was basically I think we were trying to find a gift for our dad's father's day and um all of us started making candles out of like old beer cans um and just started doing it really as a bit of a hobby um and we just sort of wondered, oh, I wonder if we could like maybe put these on Etsy or we could, you know, turn it into something a bit more of like an e-commerce business and actually start to make some sort of money for it and turn it into a business. And then the more that we were looking, instead of going down like the Etsy route, I kind of just was like, actually, there seems to just be a massive gap in the scented candle market in general for a bit of humor. Um, <laughs> I was like, it's all very serious and you can spend 80 pounds on a, really luxury candle that has all these hints of all these Mm. amazing smells but sometimes you just want a candle that smells nice without all the pomp behind it (laughs) um so we started to think of like some funny ones i think i mentioned before i'm quite into politics we've got some quite politically charged ones quite left wing um but then we were thinking do you know what we need something to try and launch this we had no no budget whatsoever because we were skint in the middle of lockdown so I was like, I'll try and create a digital PR campaign, just a story, really, to try and sell it. Um, and then that's when we created like the 2020 scent candles. It was a candle that smelled like, well, it had four different layers, four different smells. It smelled like different elements of 2020. So one part of it smelled like Joe Exotic from Tiger King. One part smelled like hand sanitizer. One was banana bread because that's what everyone had been baking in the lockdown <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, and it did really, really well. It launched the business. Um, it kind of got us to where we are now. Like we got some nice profit from it. Like it was, it was really good. And it was also really like affirming because it was the first thing I think I'd ever done by myself. Like mm. they kind of used the skills I'd learned over the years and pushed it. And it's just been quite fun to do because it's something we do on the side as well. There's not necessarily that pressure. Like we've been really lucky and really benefit, benefited from it being successful. But I like the fact that like at the minute over the summer, if I'm honest, like we've, we've barely touched it because we've learned after a couple of years that people don't necessarily buy candles in the summer. And that's fine. We can sort of take a few months off it and revisit it and come up with new ideas and stuff as we head into like the autumn. But yeah, it's basically a candle business that sells very odd, weird scented candles in a nutshell. <laughs> well, I'm going to be buying one for my wife for Christmas. So oh, she doesn't know about it yet. So i um... <laughs> I'm definitely going to be getting a couple because we are we are big candle uh, burners. I don't know candle users. What's the what's the correct term? Yeah, I guess candle consumers. <laughs> I don't know. Candle, I'm going to consume it. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, true, that's true, actually. Especially some of the weird scents we've got. I wouldn't try. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> we go to, like, local fairs and stuff here in Norwich, and there'll be, like, some, like you said, some weird scent I've never heard of, a combination of a flower and a thing and a mineral I've never heard of. And I'm like, okay, cool, yeah, sure, don't know what that is. And I love that yeah. you guys are just, like, gaze against Rishi, and I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and the thing is, is that it, it's... um. Again, again, like it's kind of a market that we thought, oh, like it'll be a laugh, but actually, people love it. And I think that's the thing is that the scented candle industry, I'm probably going off on a tangent here, but it's very, you can either go to your local supermarket and get really, really, um, like all right, but like low price, necessarily low quality. And then, oh, but then again, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, there's a massive end of the spectrum where brands will charge £100 for a candle and the branding's so good that you'll pay it. But yeah. it's kind of, you can play around with it. And I think where we have sat flaming crap's quite a fun space to play in, really. Yeah, definitely. Um, Again, literally had that conversation with my wife the other day because we were in, I think it was Card Factory or Clinton's, one of those things, and they had a scented candle section. And I literally turned around and went, who gets their scented candles from Clinton Card? Like, what a weird place to get your scented candles. <laughs> and two weeks later, we'd been in Harrods in London and saw one for £150. I was like, who can afford that? And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm the guy in the middle. I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm. that makes sense. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, but it blows my mind, especially now I know how you make candles and, like, the the scents you have to put into them and the oils and everything. Um, it's just fantastic branding. That's that's mm. what it is. Like, Because now I've realised the actual how you make them and you can make really good quality candles at the price you can. And we're a tiny business. We do it in my basement. We don't have a workshop. We don't have a <laughs> warehouse. My basement is literally a candle workshop. Um, so, yeah, it's just, it's a really interesting industry, I think, um, to kind of parody a little bit as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So we we touched on a couple of little things. We touched on branding. So let's dive into our topic, shall we? The The big meaty topic we teased at the top of the show. And you came up with a really... In true style, you came up with a very catchy title for it as well, which I very much appreciate. <laughs> that saves my job of creating the title for the podcast episode, which <laughs> <Any> is <time. laughs> breaking out of your brand bubble. And I think we can we can kind of come at it because I'm very much an SEO guy. You're very much a digital PR person. So we can kind of come at it from two different angles and hopefully the listeners will learn a few ideas and pick up on a few things and uh, yeah, maybe share some horror stories from our experiences on agency side stuff as well. So, um, where do you want to start, Alex? Should we should we kind of talk about how brands kind of originally approach their digital PR and how so many brands kind of get stuck in their bubble? Should we start with kind of defining that bubble and then we'll kind yeah. of try and break out of it as we go through the show? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's quite it's a really interesting one to dissect. I think um, I think from my experience and the way I wanted to try and talk about it and dissect it is because there is so much to unpack but i think what's really interesting is that working in digital pr and especially recently with my time at john doe working more on this sort of traditional creative brand size brands covered it from like two sides of the coin so you get brands that come to an agency and say we want digital pr services we want links and we want them because we know it's going to impact our seo value some brands that I've worked with have an amazing insight into their SEO goals. They have a great internal team and, you know, you can really work with them based upon that, the kind of links that you want to build and the relevancy of them and all that kind of thing. And then often you can work with brands that maybe aren't as clued up, smaller businesses, and just want links because they know it will benefit them and they know it will have some mm. sort of positive SEO impact. And that's kind of where um, it's left. And then I think on the other 
on the other side of the coin is you get businesses and marketing teams that obviously are thinking about their branding and what are their brand values and their brand identity and their brand sentiment. And it's all about how do consumers uh, take in their brand? How do they receive it? And what do they think about it? And how can they change that? And, and what effect does that have on their sales or the services that they offer or their products and all that kind of thing? And I think what's really interesting is that at the minute, there's not really, I think, a really comprehensive space in the middle um, that a lot of agencies or a lot of in-house brands, just from my experience, do in terms of linking them two things up together. Mm, so I think yeah. a lot of a lot of agencies will, uh, a lot of businesses, sorry, will come to an agency, for example, be like, okay, we want links. We want to do some digital PR campaigns because we want to increase our rankings for these keywords or these pages or whatever it might be. Um, but at the same time, they're not really working closely with their brand goals. Like they might be wanting to do that, but also what is their brand strategy for the next six months? And have they considered how their consumers, what they think about their brand anyway? You know, we might be wanting to increase a certain product's rankings in order to drive sales, for example. But actually, has something happened in terms of their brand that is going to negatively impact their sales regardless of how, where they rank on Google and kind of vice versa. You can get uh, brands and businesses that will come wanting um, what I guess you'd consider in our industry is like traditional PR methods. So they want to do a big stunt. They want to do a big out of home campaign. Um, they want to do, you know, something that um, really captures uh, people on the street and make them think about that brand and that product and that service. Uh, you know, a consumer might walk past this amazing event that's going on in Covent Garden or whatever and think, oh, that's a cool bottle of water. I'm going to Google that <laughs> and, and, and look to buy it. They go to Google it. They can't find that website because they don't rank very well. Or actually, you can't buy that product from the website. You have to get it through a third-party vendor and all these different things. And I think often brand goals and SEO slash digital PR goals for businesses aren't necessarily um, interlinked in the way they could be. And I think it's important for brands that have a very clear, I guess what you'd call a brand vision or a brand strategy to kind of step out of that and think, yes, we want to do this because we want to, you know, improve brand sentiment amongst our demographic of people aged 18 to 30. But they don't always work hand in hand with, say, an SEO team or a UX team or something to understand how are them consumers accessing your channels, your mm. website, your, your, you know, your products, your services, because ultimately the, the user journey has to flow neatly throughout all those things, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a key thing because we talk about it so much in SEO is search intent and like understanding your audience and like what are people actually searching for to find your website, whether that's your products, your services, your homepage, it doesn't really matter. But what are people actually searching for to find? Because I find a lot of times people think they would be ranking for certain things or think they are targeting a particular thing, even through digital PR and SEO as well. And actually people are not searching for that kind of thing and people using very specific wording in completely different ways they didn't expect. And you realize, oh, the idea of our like audience personas might be slightly different online than it is in person. Like you said, if you see something on the street there's like a, a bus ad or a pr stunt in the town square or whatever it is 
that's probably going to capture a very different audience to people that are searching on their phones, to people that are searching on desktop. There's a whole different variety of audiences there, right? And I think that's such a key thing for me coming from a SEO perspective, and I'm sure it is for you from digital PR, is who is this for? What what kind of... Are you trying to like grow your existing audience? Are you trying to capture new eyeballs coming into the brand? And I think that breaking out of the bubble kind of thing is really about trying to capture those new people, right? You kind of... Mm-hmm. if you Even if you already have a clear idea, say you're doing... Like you said, we work with some people who really know what they're doing. They've got a great idea of what they want to do from their strategic point of view. Got their PR plans. They've got their SEO strategy. It's all kind of tying in together. You want to really kind of grow and build that and expand out of that you got to think about who you're actually targeting with this information and what are people searching for and maybe even literally like what kind of publications and stuff like that because that's such a key part of digital pr as well right yeah that's absolutely massive and i think that's one thing that um again has, ch- has changed i think as we move into more of a digital world i think one thing that i find really interesting is you'll still have um, big brands, big corporations, big businesses that have an idea of the the audience that they want to target, for example, uh, and they will say, "We want you know a big national spread in in one of the the papers." Uh, and even if it's not print, we want a big couple of online national pieces of coverage. So the Times, the Telegraph, the Guardian, etc. Um, and that's doable, and that obviously has its value because they're you know well trusted you know, high authority sites, all that kind of thing. It has its place to do it. Yeah, I guess it's it's weighing the kind of, like you said, the literal, again, wobbly terminology, but like the value of that link in terms of mm. SEO, just straight up building links with without any regard of audience and just building, you know, the authority of your own site through that way. And then, like you said, coming out from the other perspective and trying to tie that into what are high authority sites that are actually in your niche, in your industry, are relevant to your audience. You can yeah. do it both ways, I guess. Like there, there are certainly different ways of doing it. But have you found there's been more of a shift, especially now with like the pandemic and COVID and more people moving online and all that kind of stuff? Has there been a shift towards like more specific industry specific stuff, or has it gone kind of more broad over the last few years? I would say it's become more niche, just from my mm. experience. I think I. I love working with a client, for example, or a business that works in a in a particular niche. And I love challenging almost what, say, their branding team thinks would be great coverage for them. So, mm. for example, if they are looking to target, say, it's a sports brand and they want to target, um, you know, young um, men or people that identify as male at, between 18 to, 20, uh, 18 to 30, uh, and they think the way that they're going to do that is through national coverage in the sports sections. Obviously, there's a, there's a whole other debate about, you know, getting that in print. Is an 18 to 30-year-old going out and buying a Sunday newspaper for the sports? No, they're probably not. <laughs> and then also, are they actually going to, um, I don't know, BBC Sport? Like a lot of them might be, but there's so many other niche channels. So what I've found is that if you're going to, for example, a certain... Uh, football clubs own news site or a forum or reddit or all these other channels which they might not consider as as weighty or as quality as you know uh, a link in the guardian sports section actually what you can prove if you have good analytics set up is okay you've actually we've driven loads of traffic to this specific product page for example based on this link that was in quite a niche sports site um 
And I think what brands are kind of learning more, and I, I think the industry is trying to do, is basically just understand that, especially like Gen Z consumers and younger consumers that really are getting their news and trends and everything from other platforms like TikTok, for example. They're consuming news where it's available to them and they're not bound by the fact that it's not a UK newspaper or it's not a reputable um, site like Cosmopolitan or not mm-hmm. the, the new sports. But, you, you know, titles that we've all come to know and respect. Yeah. There is newer sites out there that specifically will write about the business of football and it has a really loyal readership and it might be US-based, for example. That's another sort of thing to consider. They think, oh, well, we only want to target UK consumers, so we want UK publications. But mm. I live in the UK, but I still pour over like the New York Post and CNN and things like that. Um, it's kind of understanding the breadth, I think, of where people are consuming their news now. And also that there's there's a place, there's a niche on the internet for everybody and everyone's different interests. And you kind of need to understand where your audience is accessing that. And it's moving away from traditional formats and also traditional publications, I guess, that you consider. Yeah, I think we're having a similar conversation in SEO recently. We talk about long tail keywords so often on the show. Obviously, Mark did a talk about it at Brighton SEO uh, earlier this year, and we've talked about it a lot here at Candor and in the industry in general. It's almost a similar kind of vibe for me in that way of like, you want to go for like, oh, yeah, this keyword's got 15,000 search volume and all that kind of stuff. Or you want to go for, yeah, I want to go for DR93. I want to go for this huge, uh, you know, high authority site. Again, wobbly metrics <laughs> don't just judge everything on just numbers we know this by now but going for those more specific niche publications and on the other side going for like long tail specific search volume of keywords you're getting more engaged audience members right you're you're then targeting people who are you know a person who finds your particular sports brand on a sports section might be a rugby fan or a boxing fan and you're a football brand so you don't get the click Whereas if you land on a football-specific website and you are targeted to that specific team or whatever it is, I, I don't know football. <laughs> Neither do I. I don't know why you even use that example. To I, I don't know why you pick sports. We're in the wrong, we're in the wrong way. <laughs> um, but yeah, that totally makes sense, right? You would have a more engaged audience. They're there for a specific reason. You're more likely to drive that conversion to eventually click through, maybe even purchase products and all that kind of stuff. Building that engagement is such a key part of that. And I think that's where a lot of people lose their way. And and, again, I'm talking sort of big brand executives and all that kind of stuff. Go in with like, we know we can rank for this 15,000 volume keyword or we can be published in the Times or the Telegraph, whatever it is like. But is that going to bring you... Sure, that might bring you like 10,000 visitors to your site. But if five of those 10,000 convert, then was that really worth it? Whereas you could have 500 people who are more engaged and you get 100 out of 500 and you get that conversion rate much higher. I think that's, it, it's kind of weird you have the kind of parallels there in SEO and di- in digital PR as well. And I think a lot of people kind of, uh, like I said, I think we're moving in the right direction. Like you were saying, I think more people are kind of being switched on to this kind of stuff, especially with people like using TikTok, as you were saying, Gen Zers and all that kind of stuff. We're more aware of how the digital world works, how online works, all that kind of stuff. And mm. hopefully, hopefully, fellow agency workers out there your clients and all the brands you're working with and stuff like that are becoming more aware of that if they're not 
go and educate them <laughs> like, yeah, no, like Alex genuinely. has been doing. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is the thing, though, is that I think what what is striking is that if you solely are working with a brand and you have a really good relationship and you're, you're probably working with, they might have an in-house digital PR team or a content marketing team or an SEO team, you usually are just working with those people in those roles. And often what I think happens is that internally in a lot of, especially bigger businesses, there can be a disconnect between those teams and the branding team. And I think that's where that bridging that gap and working a lot more cohesively together works if you're the agency that's working with with all those people because your brand goals and SEO slash, you know, digital PR goals often are, are working towards a very, very similar thing. And what I think, especially as, you know, as we've come through the pandemic and who knows what's happening at the minute, but, you know, there's all talks of a recession and things like that. Like money is mm. going to be tighter for businesses. It's kind of making sure that, you know, if you are putting on a big brand event, you know, what is the the evergreen content that you're getting out of it? Is that being hosted on on site? Are you going to spend a million pounds on a, an amazing event pop-up, which then people have nowhere to access to if they read about it three days later? It's that kind of long-lasting ability to take a brand exercise and position it, whether it's on your website or in another form, to make sure that consumers can revisit that and then go through and engage and convert with your product or service. And I think it's that kind of marrying up between branding and brand goals and the SEO and digital PR goals that there's still work to be done, I think. Um, And it's kind of like, I think, an agency job as well to help bridge that because ultimately, especially my job, I think that's where you have the most fun. Like, um, (laughs) I think, yeah, being able to marry those goals up together means that, yes, you might be working on, you know, some digital PR activity that's very very closely linked to its seo goals but then if you're also working towards a brand goal of driving x amount of customers or x amount of signups or sales then you can employ a massive out of home stunt as you would call it um and make sure that it lines up and that we're building links with it and that we're driving traffic to specific products product pages and things like that um it's just doing it in a way that answers both goals i think yeah i was talking to a friend of mine who worked in more traditional kind of events kind of stuff so they then the company they work for kind of like sponsors big conferences and all that kind of stuff and i jokingly teased them about using a qr code and they went you would be amazed at how many clicks we get from the qr code rather than people reading www.brand.co.uk nobody goes into google and types that stuff in when you're at the event but people will go oh yeah great snap and just get the qr code while they're there and i'm like really i thought because i I don't know if it's me just being cynical and being very online and you know living in the working in it living in it all that kind of stuff and just i'm just jaded and jaded old man in seo at this point maybe that's the maybe that's the case but i found it fascinating that it was kind of that blend of like you said the real life traditional pr stuff they people are in person going to an event and it's post-pandemic. It was recently. It was like a couple of weeks ago. And also using a thing I thought people didn't even use anymore. It was like, oh, yeah, we go on Bebo or something. Like, what? No. <laughs> like, QR codes are still a thing, really? I was like, yeah. We got, I think it was, again, completely anonymous source of all this kind of stuff. I'm trying to remember the numbers off the top of my head. I think it was like 60% click rate on um, QR codes and like less than 20 on people actually visiting the site with the link on the on the like banner or the poster or whatever it was like 
That is fascinating to me. Yeah. Have you had much experience yeah. kind of blending those with your previous work and events and stuff, kind of blending digital PR and trying to convince, like like you said, trying to break traditional PR people out and get them more involved in that digital side of things? Yeah, I think, if I'm honest, I think it's probably one of the biggest challenges. I think especially recently, like, so the reason um, it was really great to work at John Doe is because we were trying to fuse those things together. Mm. Um, and it, an example like you've just said is that ultimately, I think consumers, we want convenience and at like the highest degree and are lazy. So if you're in an event <laughs> and it's like, you know, access more information at www. People can't be bothered. They can't be bothered to remember it. They yeah. snap a photo. They're not going to go back and look at it. A QR code's one way in, but... There's a there's really good examples of brands that do do brands building stuff really well and do really good SEO and digital PR work. Is that I, do you know what I think it might be Virgin Media? And I was driving the other day, and on the back of, in front of me was a Virgin Media van. On the back of the van was search fiber optic to see our new deals or something like that. And I was like, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, searched it and Virgin Media ranking number one for like fiber optic broadband and things like that. And I mean that's a really good way of they want to capture someone's attention quickly. People are lazy. If you can just search two words, they know. I like the confidence conf- in the SEO as well. We exactly. know, we're, was gonna say, we know yeah. we're high ranking. Screw you. Yeah, just, exactly. Just it was that, like, you'll find us. It? it was like that pure <laughs> confidence to know that they yeah. are keeping that ranking as well. They're obviously doing something to maintain that. Must be an incredibly competitive keyword as well. <laughs> yeah. So, so I thought that's really clever because it's not asking the consumer to do a lot and um, it it does blend those things together really, really well. And I think mm. um, it's clever because also I think I talk a lot about like the user journey and kind of like the, you know, the product purchase journey and stuff like that. But I think it's really important that you kind of have to understand, I think as a digital PR, like what people care about. And I think a lot of brand building activity misses the mark of that sometimes. I think it's so good to put on a, an event um, or some big stunt or even something that, you know, does live online that's, you know, seen as like a brand building activity, but it's very much like brand has launched X product or launches new service or brand does this, brand does that. And you just think, why, well, why should I care? Why should I care that that brand has released that new product? And it might be wrapped up in, you know, a really nice out of home stun or whatever it might be. They might have floated something down the Thames as, as everyone says. Um, <laughs> but ultimately I still don't know why I should care. And outside of getting, you know, maybe some media coverage in one or two nationals, like marketing specific press, um, something like that, the the book kind of stops there. And I think actually, all right, they've got they might have hit that KPI of the client wanted 10 links. They've got them 10 links and it might be in ad week and it might be in in, you know, publications like that but they wanted to target a really specific um consumer you know aged 30 to 40 living in i don't know the us wherever it might be these these really nailed down demographics and getting in those publications aren't gonna you know people that read marketing week are probably marketers like it's not um (laughs) it's not gonna like marry up to your business goals and your brand goals and i think it's really important to kind of try and think, okay, well, brands launched X product, but what problem are we solving? Why do people care? What are people searching? You know, what are the problems that people are turning to Google to solve for them? And I think that's where digital PR and SEO and everything kind of marries in more is that we should be basing more of our 
ideas and campaigns on insight and then the campaign i always like say like the campaign or the activation should be in response to a user problem or some sort of buffer or something or even if it's just an emotional gap that it plugs like you know it doesn't have to necessarily answer something all the time but i think too often there's brand building activity that brands will spend a fortune on and ultimately it exists it might do well for a couple of days and then it dissipates and you know a really good one people will remember but not always and if it doesn't live online and if it's not been sort of digital PR and SEO hasn't been considered as a part of it you can create something that's amazing and then it doesn't have any long-lasting effect yeah I think that's a key thing we talk about in SEO all the time as well is the golden rule of don't do anything for the benefit of search engines that doesn't also benefit the user. I think that yeah. ties really well into that as well because you've got to think about, as we keep talking about, who is actually clicking on this thing and coming through to your website? Who is actually going to read and remember, like you said, search for blah, 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 and you'll find us, or a QR code or a URL or whatever it is. Who are those people that are actually going to see that place, whether it's placed on a site, a link in an article, a uh, on a poster or a banner at an event or whatever it is, who are those people coming into it? And I was really interested because uh, to, to go behind the scenes here, listeners, Alex did some fantastic work on the show notes, by the way, which I very much, I can instantly tell you're a fellow podcaster because you just filled the show notes <laughs> with really cool stuff. And I was like, yeah, love to be <laughs> I'm a huge show notes person and people often are irritated by how much show notes I, I write out and stuff. And by the time I got to the doc, I'd sent it over to Alex. You'd already filled it out. So I appreciate that. And one thing you touched on is, like you said, going for that data-led approach and understanding stuff from Google Analytics, from Search Console, maybe some third-party tools, but let's kind of focus on those kind of the first-party data we get from Search Console, the, the analytics data there as well. What can, I guess, us as marketers, both coming from SEO and, and PR, think about how we can use that data to better understand our audiences, better understand who we're going to build those campaigns for, whether it's SEO or PR? Yeah, I think a really, I say easy, but there's still a lot of people that I think like struggle. I think a lot of, say, like branding teams look at something like Google Analytics and think, oh God, like, you know, that's that's something that we don't deal with or, or can use and can utilize as pieces of insight. But I think the biggest one that I would look at is your referral traffic. Where Where are captivated audiences coming from? So if you look at people that are coming onto your website and buying from them, buying products or whatever it is, whatever you set up your conversion to be, um, where are they coming from? So if it's a case of they're coming from the publications that you're trying to target with your PR efforts, then fantastic. Because, you know, you know that if you are wanting to build links in the Guardian and the Independent and people are, you know, engaging, clicking through and buying something, then that's working really, really well. And you can kind of consolidate what you're doing but also i think it once you've got that consolidated audience this kind of ties it back into like breaking out that brand bubble you know you can be confident that you have a captive audience there and you're hitting them in the right places with what the activity that you're doing if you're noticing for example that you are getting uh, a big influx of say you're a food brand and you're selling a lot of like vegetarian vegan products all of a sudden you think okay there's a demand there Yes, we're going to the same publications that we know we get interested parties from, but have we considered doing PR activity that targets vegnews.com or plant-based news and all things? You wouldn't consider them huge, amazing 
publications in the same respect you consider the Guardian, but you can look at your analytics and think, okay, people, there's an interest here. Um, and you can sort of work on it that way. And I also think the channels in which they're engaging as well. Oh, like That's gonna be exactly going to be my next question. You, you beat yeah. me to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think um, where they're coming from is, is really, really interesting. I think for me, I was working on, they were like a drinks brand, basically. And they wanted a, basically, it was just a rebranding project. It wasn't necessarily a digital PR project, mm. um, but they wanted a rebranding project and they wanted to like redo their brand story and ultimately appeal to consumers in a more authentic way. And from a quick look in their analytics, I was like, okay, well, we have created a lot of long form content. We have a lot of content that's posted on Twitter, on Instagram. But then if you look at the past year, the past, you know, I think for even longer, they had loads of people that were really interested and had come through from their YouTube. And they had they had a few pieces of YouTube content. Wasn't very well updated. Um, but these videos were a couple of years old and they were still getting regular views, regular traffic. Um, and I was like, that's really interesting because it's an area that you can see consumers are coming through from. They're obviously liking what they're seeing on YouTube. Let's think about a content strategy for, you know, can we utilize YouTube in a different way? Is there something mm. more we could be doing to it? And I think that's what I found really interesting because that isn't necessarily the digital PR side, but I think you can use all these tools to think this, this is our big PR strategy, but actually we could build a link here that's going to get UX value. But looking at your analytics, your search console, everything else, you know, there's other channels in which we could be doing that or we could even be sending people through to um your tiktok if if a big query for example on their search console is say they own a product and a big way people find them is you know how to do this and the product answers that if we're seeing that there's other phrases other keywords of that make it clear that people still aren't getting how to do that certain task why don't you help the consumer is there a blog you could do on how to do that specific thing could you be creating a tiktok to show them literally how to do it and it's just kind of using those seo those digital PR techniques and think okay we've kind of done one job as in we're driving people to our website through this activity but consider the other ways in which people are um doing that as well and those are the channels and i think tiktok's obviously a great example because obviously it's exploded in the past couple of years but yeah. the way in which now if i want to if I want a product review of something, I go to TikTok straight away. So if you <laughs> see that people are wanting content around a product that you sell, and you might have fantastic content, whether it's on a blog or whatever on your site, and you might be getting regular traffic, kind of have a play in your analytics and search console and, and see if you can spot any of those trends or patterns and think, okay, there's actually a demand for us here that people are coming to our website, reading our blog, leaving it, and still not having that question resolved. So is there another way in which we can do it through a different channel? So there's loads and loads of ways I think you can learn from that kind of stuff. And I think it makes for just a, a better, well-rounded strategy because you also then can can create campaigns and create things um, to, say, rank pages of your website that you might not have considered previously and mm. stuff like that. So, yeah, there's loads to go out with it, really. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Coming on to that kind of multi-channel approach, again, kind of trying to break brands out of like, oh, yeah, we really focus on SEO and when a lot of people think of digital PR, you think of like reactive PR where you submit a quote or whatever it is and you get the 
Jack from Canada.co.uk, blah, blah, blah. And there's a little quote in there like, oh, yeah, there's the link with Canada.co.uk. There's a little hyperlink. That's it. Like, but there are so many different ways of doing it, like shareable data and infographics, interactable stuff. Um, and I think TikTok has become such a huge part of it, tying back around to SEO and to digital PR as well. Because, um, again, I talked with Annie May about this on our TikTok episode a few weeks ago, talking about how if you think your audience could be there, like you said, if you're getting that data to suggest, oh, there might be people who aren't getting the answers to their questions, or there is a way to show our product in a new way, rather than just some nice photos or, you know, a nice product description, there is a way to show it actually being used by whether that's real customers or somebody on your team or whatever it is, there is an opportunity there. And why not take it? Essentially, that's mm. that's the whole kind of crux of right. If there if there is interest there, then take advantage of it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you just definitely. give gotta give them the nudge to actually get on there. And I think like you said, TikTok has become such a huge thing recently. And we talked about TikTok as a search engine previously on the on the show and talking about how, like exactly like you said, if you want to go somewhere or try a product for the first time, how does this work on TikTok or yeah. blah, 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 review, blah, 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 restaurant, whatever it is, you get the answer in 30 seconds. You don't have to read a SEO-driven 1,500-word article that gives you all the lovely little keywords and all the different headings and stuff. You get an answer in 25, 30 seconds, a minute maybe. And yeah, I think a lot of brands, like you said, kind of get stuck in one, but maybe just need that nudge to kind of go off and try different things. Mm -hmm. YouTube being a great example that we know is huge. Like We know YouTube is one of the biggest websites in the world. It's consistently ranked as one of the biggest search areas in the world as well and now tiktok is kind of creeping up in there as as we know like you said over the last couple of years so i guess how would you kind of what is your approach to kind of have that conversation with the brand from you as as the head of a pr department you coming in from a manager perspective talking to your team about it and then kind of pitching it up to whether that's your clients or you know if you're working internally perhaps like going up to the directors and executives and all that kind of stuff yeah i think the first question i always try and gauge is usually it's, it's during the pitch process not even the onboarding process but it's what are your business goals what are your business mm. and your brand goals that you want this seo digital pr retainer for example to support and you can gather loads of stuff from that because often they, you know, it might be just brand awareness, brand, general brand awareness, or, you know, we want to increase sales, we want to increase sign-ups, whatever it might be. I try and gauge what that is. And then what I try and do is, is just understand the way in which they work internally. I think if they're a very big business, often there can be a lot of um, decision makers, there can be a lot of red tape to go through to get things signed off. And often what you find is that um, it can be, it can be challenging to be more challenging in the kind of content that you want to create. So I think it's really important when I'm like chatting to a brand, for example, is to say, okay, um, we want to target this demographic and we want to increase sales. The problem that we've got is that the kind of PR, for example, that you're wanting us to do is very much, we are this brand, we have done this. Mm. There's no story. And I think it all relates back to stories. Like what story? are you trying to tell? And I think 
the thing that I try and, and it's a massive trust process. Like the brand has to trust you as an agency and, and us as people and, and vice versa. It's a massive trust exercise, but it's all about the story. Like what story do you want to tell? And I think brands can be really uh, sort of skeptical if we think, okay, we want to do this campaign, which potentially tells this story, but it doesn't necessarily include a product or doesn't talk loads about who you are as a brand. And they think, oh, but how, you know, what is the benefit going to be to us if people don't recall our brand or recall, you know, that element of their comms that they want to push. But, and I've used it as an example before, is we mentioned like Flaming Crap and that 2020 candle. I think it's a really good example of story-led content winning out. Mm. Like, I, 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 to this day, I think it's still the best campaign I've ever done ever <laughs> for, for brands and like not brands. And that's promise that's not like a proper plug. It's more just that... Um, it was a funny story that landed at like a right time. We had no brand. We had a name. We didn't have anything. Our website was terrible and built on like a free builder. It was SEO. Like you'd probably cry if you saw the state of the SEO of it at the time. <laughs> there was no pre-existing idea. It literally was just, and it wasn't even pushing the product in the sense that it's like brand launches product. It was the story around it. And that's what captivated the press. It's what captivated consumers and ultimately did lead to sales which was amazing but i think brands that are so well established and have a great idea of what their brand um, identity is and know that they want to appeal to a certain demographic that through you know research or audience insights they think they know really well i think there can be a lot of hesitance hesitancy to break out into into doing something that's a little bit outside of their field or for example if we identify that you know, yes, you might be thinking that your audience is predominantly over 50s, but your analytics, which is like, you know, cold hard data is showing us that these over 50s are finding you through YouTube. They might be finding you through TikTok. You know, there's loads of old people that use it, all these different <laughs> channels. And just because you have a, you know, successful, profitable business and it's something that you've done for a while, it's not, it's never too late to really change how you're approaching it. And I think, um, being story led is the most important thing because that's ultimately what, um, first of all, as journalists want, they want the story. There's very few journalists that will write about, you know, a product launch. It, obviously that there is journalists that do, but you're very limited and it depends on the kind of brand that you are. Um, so they want a story. So it has to be something that, you know, actually appeals to a reader. Like, are you going to scroll through, um, Cosmopolitan's pages? And you'd be bored shitless if you saw like product review after product review after product review. There needs to be a story and products can be weaved into that story and that narrative. It just yeah. has to be done cleverly. And I think for a lot of brands that have a goal to promote X or, you know, want to maintain this brand identity that they've obviously worked really hard to cultivate, it can be scary. And I think the biggest thing is getting a brand or a business to trust the fact that Often as well with digital PR, you can test different, you know, different topics, different themes, different niches of the press. Um, and, you know, it's not going to ruin potentially 100 years of brand history. It depends what it is. <laughs> You've obviously got to be sensible. But I think it's a massive trust exercise. And that's, I always try and convey to a brand that to get really good PR coverage, it needs to be story-led first and foremost. Like it's called earned media for a reason. If mm. it we earn it through the brand has done something that warrants a press story. Um, and, uh, it's in the name, it's press story. 
Um, if it was advertorial and they just wanted to promote that product and pay for an ad or run a TV ad or whatever it might be. And that is obviously part of your marketing funnel. There's a place for that as much as there's a place for, you know, owned media that you create that might solely live on social. There's obvious, there's obvious crossovers where, you know, you can have a campaign that, you know, you can launch, you can get amazing owned media with, you might, you know, put some paid out spend behind a certain part of it. It might perform really well on social as well. But ultimately, if they're wanting, you know, good PR coverage with actual measurable benefits, you want to create a story that feels true to the brand that is relevant for all those SEO goals and, you know, SEO metrics that we know exist. But from a brand perspective, you don't want the, the existing brand identity and what businesses think about their brand and those restrictions and that red tape to get in the way of, you know, delivering something really valuable to your existing customer, to a new customer. And also, you know, potentially helping those SEO goals as well. So I definitely say just that trust process and, you know, having businesses come on board with the fact that you, you want to create a great story-led piece and a story-led content. Because often I think if it, it can become too advertorial often, which is why it can become a challenge to get earned media. And I think often the lines bl are blurred too much and things like that. So I think just making sure that they understand if they're asking for PR coverage, they're asking for something that's earned through a narrative or a story and not necessarily like a product push. Yeah, definitely. And I want to finish off on two things. I know we're coming up to our time limit, for about phrase. I'm trying to keep these shows fairly short, but if we've got an interesting topic. We're going to go a bit longer. <laughs> hope you enjoy it listeners you're welcome for the extra content <laughs> so um a couple of things you touched on there i really want to kind of uh drill down into and then we'll, we'll finish off with these one thing i very much like live my life by i like to think is don't take yourself too seriously and you i think flaming crap is the perfect example of that right you could have gone as we said down the very serious here is a perfect combination of scents and we have perfectly tested this with uh whatever the professional name of a person who does smells i don't know what that is is that i think <laughs> are they like sommeliers for for scents and stuff yeah it's like a scent expert exactly yeah yeah, yeah yeah but then my favorite the, thing ever the candle sorry diversion again is that you can't trademark a smell so all this ah. is the best thing ever you could create a complete copy of one of these using the same oils and the same things and it would be exactly the same but you can't trademark or patent or copyright a scent. So that's how you get so, all those like fragrance dupes and stuff, right? Yeah. And they are, they will be, they might use in like less quantities, but they will be pretty much real because you can't. Chemically um, identical kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, there you yeah. go. There you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, how have you found kind of like getting brands to take themselves a little bit less seriously? And kind of where I want to go with this is where this can go wrong and some of the mistakes brands can make. But Let's start with the, the positive side, I guess, and start with the humor side of things. From my experience, that's been a big part of kind of trying to sell a lot of the uh, reactive PR stuff and a lot of the kind of quicker, kind of funnier kind of stuff is trying to get them to be like, no, no, no that is a thing. Like you said, story-led, data-led, merging those two together. If you have data that tells a story that can be engaging, that if users are reading an article or watching a video and they don't even realize they're being sold a product until, you know, if on YouTube you have to say sponsored by blah, 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 and hold the little yeah. thing up or whatever. But if you can tell a story and be funny and engaging without somebody even realizing they're being marketed to, which is, I think, quite difficult because a lot of people are very switched on nowadays. I know I am, as I said, 
very cynical, very skeptical when it comes to I feel like I can see through the BS straight away of like, mm. yeah, this is this is a campaign. Yeah, I can see the SEO behind this thing. Like, <laughs> um, yeah. how have you found it kind of trying to convince brands to take things a little bit less seriously? And and do you think that's a, a benefit in a lot of ways? Obviously, that's not true for every brand. Let's not you know say that's like a one size fits all kind of thing. But have you found experience with that outside of the huge success story of flaming crap of course <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and and mixed like there's brands where we've done um campaigns like we uh like a favorite of mine was uh for money.co.uk mm. and they wanted to you know improve authority build links to their mortgages vertical and i wanted to create the world's first how to get a mortgage on the moon piece like a proper pastiche style um article and at first we were like you know it is silly and we all because we wanted to position it as something serious you kind of there's always that risk of are people genuinely going to read this think they can get a mortgage on the moon and they complain if they can't um but i think and me like we had a great relationship with the client anyway which always makes it better because you can just have those open conversations of Yes, there are risks involved, but these are the potential rewards, and this is how we can mitigate those risks. Um, so there were certain things that we did to just mitigate people thinking that it, it was in any way real. It almost became the sillier that it was, the more obvious it was that it wasn't real. But at the same yeah. time, we used really solid data behind it. We were using data from NASA, from SpaceX, um, as basically the, the truest data we could find on how much it would cost to build a house on the moon and get, and, you know, move there and get a mortgage. It was really silly and, and stupid, but actually you could read it and have that opinion, but you could also read it and think, oh, actually, it was actually verified in a way. It was backed up as much as it could be. Um, and it did really, really well because people thought it was funny. It was a bit silly. It was really, really shareable across social, which did really well. I um, remember which, seeing it going around the socials at the time and, and being highlighted in the like PR campaigns, we love newsletters and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah absolutely. it was, it was, and it was really fun to do. And in the end, it was something that it was something that I just wanted to do because I'm a bit of a space geek anyway. I thought it'd just be fun to do. Um, I, like I've, my I've client... got an astrophysics degree. I'm right there with you. Oh, amazing! Oh, you love <laughs> a lot more than me. You might read it and think this is an absolute load of rubbish. But the, the client was kind of. It's not necessarily skeptical, but it was like, look, realistically, we want to get people onto the mortgages vertical and then move on, you know, to looking at advice and things like that. Um, went with it, convincing internally. It was like, okay, it's a bit of a pun, it's a bit of a risk, but I was passionate that it would work. And the team, the data team that we um, had at the time was fantastic and really made sure that it was like verifiable. Mm. Um, so it was a risk, but it was a risk that paid off. I think, the, I think one of the issues you've got all the time is is the campaign that you're doing that might be a little bit more out there a little bit silly or you know something that's less safe is who are the people that it could affect i think mm, a really yeah. good example at the minute is the cost of living crisis it's something that's like affecting every household pretty much and then like yesterday obviously this isn't necessarily a digital PR example but yesterday i don't know if you saw like You've got Phil Schofield and Holly Willoughby on this morning doing spin to wins for people to win their energy bills. Oh, yeah. It's that Mitchell and Webb sketch, right? It's the yeah. dystopian game show. Oh, yeah, God. that's the thing. Yeah. And it's like, you you know that whoever has had the idea to do that has done it from, like, 
the right place. They wanted to yeah. help people out. They're, they're still offering to give people money. Like the intent exactly. is positive. It's I guess. good. <laughs> yeah. It's, but then, however, it's the way in which it's been perceived is seen as quite obviously tone deaf. And it's something that everyone, th- there's an audience of, of millions that can take offense to that because a lot of people are in a similar boat. So I think yeah. they're, they're the horror stories that put brands off doing, off doing stuff. <laughs> yeah, that, is, that is like that. But I think ultimately it's, it's mitigating the risk that could happen. Um, it's making sure that if you're going to do something, do it with sincerity. If you're using data, for example, even if it is for a building a house on the moon campaign, do it to the best ability you can and make sure that it's not just, you know, stuff that's made up or whatever. Um, and also it's just understanding as well whether the brand really has a position to talk about that topic. Mm. Um, I think that's a big one that that comes into it. I always remember, I think it was on International's Women's Day, I think it was Burger King um, tweeted about, Women belong in the kitchen, and that was it. And actually, that that was the tweet. And then under the tweet, there was a whole thread about, you know, actually that was a quote, and they were, it was all to do with them donating money to the sentiment was, you know, okay, but mm. the execution, which was obviously designed to shock and designed to be shared, okay, it might have, you know, I bet it did get whatever social metrics they probably actually sure. to that yeah. tweet, but the sentiment that came off it you know, was really toned deaf. Um, yeah. So it's kind that of that... ratioed with quote tweets and stuff, I yes, can only imagine. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's where, like, kind of tying it all back around, like, SEO, digital PR, and brand shouldn't be viewed as, like, two separate teams, two mm. separate verticals. They should work together because, um, you know, there's, there's for example, uh, I think it was ZZ Restaurants, I don't even remember. It was a couple of years ago. There's the Salisbury Cathedral. Was it Salisbury Cathedral poisonings or something? Of those Russian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, for example, there's loads of links uh, and people writing about ZZ restaurants. And from an SEO perspective, like, oh, we've got all these links from the BBC, from this and that. Well, they're getting linked out from a story about these poisonings because that's where it happened. It is in a local ZZ restaurant. So there's obviously those kind of more quantitative like seo goals that they might things might be meeting but yeah. look up the brand side of it for zz that's probably a bit of a pr disaster um we, we were joking about this in the office the other day we'd seen a brand who had gotten like you said those mentions in a bunch of stuff and we, we were just like doing some research having a look at that backlink profiles like wow this is incredible coverage and it was like and they failed at their job. They, they like they were a partner of a much bigger thing. And I think it was like some cybersecurity thing or something like that. And and they've lost millions of dollars. And I was like, ah, okay. Um, and we were like, I wonder who's the poor SEO that is sending out the emails. We're like, hello, you mentioned my brand in that article about us being terrible at our jobs. Could you include a link, please? Yeah. <laughs> Have you got the balls to send out that email? <laughs> yeah. Is it worth the shame and embarrassment? To try and get a link from bbc.co.uk. <laughs> yeah, and then and then th- literally that's and then that's what I find so interesting in the whole brand versus SEO is because you Google ZZ if all that's happened and then the first things you're seeing are news articles about poisonings. Yeah, you know, all right, ZZ might be ranking. It might be you know three articles about poisoning and ZZ restaurants. Are you going to read three articles about poisoning and then want to book? <laughs> you, Probably I mean, not. You might get the the news feed at the top right because you'll get latest yeah. news on yeah. top of your SERP that yeah. even arrives before the organic ranking so sure zz.com will rank and stuff but you'll get those yeah. 
like you said, the snippets at the top there. Yeah, that could exactly. be very damaging. <laughs> yeah, and th- but then this is where like a brand team working well with a digital team can, you know, there's a massive brand job there to do to repair brand sentiment. But obviously, the first things people might see are the paid ads. So, what paid ad strategy could they start to employ to yeah. mitigate that? You know, is there a really good campaign, a digital PR campaign we could do to start to like affect some of these rankings for some of the words? Yeah. Is 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 that married up? I think that is like a really good example and why digital teams and brand teams should be working like hand in hand in my opinion well there you go i think that is the perfect note to end on well done alex <laughs> no <but laughs> perfectly brought everything back around full circle <laughs> cool. so if the listeners haven't found your stuff already where can they find you across the internet and of course listeners links for all this stuff will be in the show notes at search.withcanda.co.uk Yes, yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Alex Hickson PR. If you fancy a scented candle, they're at flamingcrap.com. Um, and yeah, any questions, feel free to drop me a DM. Nice. Slide into Alex's DMs, but not for long. He's going to be married soon, so you've only, you've only, <laughs> got, a few, only got a few months to do that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for coming, Alex. I really appreciate it. I know we've run long. I know we've asked a lot of questions and covered a lot of stuff, so I very much appreciate you coming on the show. Well, that wraps us up for this week. Thank you again to Alex for coming on the show. Please do go and check out Flaming Cramp. It is a fantastic idea if you're looking for candles for gifts. I know we're coming up to Christmas fairly soon, so I highly recommend you go and check out Flaming Crap. You can, of course, find the links for everything Alex and I have talked about and everything I talked about earlier on in the show as well by going to search.withcanda.co.uk. Like I said, I've got a Halloween special coming up in a few weeks as well, so please do stay tuned for that. And I've got some incredible guests coming up in the next few weeks as well, including the likes of Gerard Ramos, Daniel K. Chung, Olga Zazechna, and plenty of other fantastic interviews. And Mark and I will be doing more of the monthly live streams as well. So please stay tuned for all of that stuff. Spread the good word of Search with Candor. If you have any questions or anything like that, you can, of course, reach me on Twitter. I am JLW Chambers on all the usual social media stuff. But until next week, thank you very much for listening and have a lovely week. <laughs>